Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, who holds a bachelor's and master's degree in nutritional science, as well as a PhD in physiology. She currently um, has a fellowship in behavioral neuroscience at Mount Sinai at, in New York. She has more than 30 awards in over 25 peer-reviewed publications, some of the world's top journals, such as Nature. And she also happens to be the host of the People's Scientist podcast, where she covers the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. Stephanie, welcome so much to the show. Thank you for, thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be on your show. Yeah, absolutely. And I trust that you're staying safe and healthy in New York. Yes, and you as well. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely it's definitely interesting, and I'm doing my best to listen to all of the guidelines that have been recommended, of course, from the scientific, uh, the primary scientific sources such as the CDC, the WHO, and the government and whatnot. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely been interesting. It has so I, been. Yeah, it has been. <laughs> Anyway, I was, uh, so you have quite the scientific background, and I was curious as to how exactly you even became interested in science in the first place. That's a great question. I think when I try and look back on what sparked my interest was actually back in grade four, I, our teacher was teaching us the Canada Food Guide, because I, I grew up in Canada, which is equivalent to like the U.S. Uh, food pyramid. And I remember being fascinated learning about nutrition and how we should eat certain foods from certain food groups. And I had asked her if I could have extra copies of the Canada Food Guide to bring home. And that was the first memory of me really being interested in nutrition. And I don't know what about it intrigued me so much, but it, from being a young child, I was always interested in nutrition. And so when I decided what to do for my bachelor's degree, I wanted to initially be a dietitian. And so I trained to be a dietitian. And then I quickly learned that I needed more. You know, I, I'm always curious. I want to know the science behind things. You know, why are there guidelines that we should eat this many fruits and vegetables or, or this many carbohydrates? Or why are there particular guidelines for people with kidney failure? Why do they need to reduce their sodium intake? Is there something better that we can tell them to, to follow? And I always questioned the guidelines. And so I quickly learned that science is the way for me and not so much uh, being a practitioner, if that makes sense. I wasn't the type to necessarily follow the guidelines and trust the guidelines and just to go with that. I, science for me was the answer to the unanswered questions uh, as to how can we do better for our patients. So that's really, I guess, what intrigued me in the beginning. The, so you're a bit of a divergent thinker or you, an iconoclast, somebody who likes to ask a lot of questions and kind of challenge the status quo a bit, maybe push the boundaries. Yeah. Exactly. So now, yeah, so now you find yourself as a scientist pushing the boundaries of human knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. I always want to question the way things are. I was never the type to just accept it and say this was how it was going to be and, and it was that way because someone else decided it. I was like, there always has to be a better way. We can always improve medicine. We can always improve the guidelines. We can always improve dietetic guidelines. And so I always wanted to push that. And I always also wanted to continue learning. I think that was something that came across very clear in my undergrad. And a lot of my um, peers or mentors had said to me, you know, you should really go into graduate school because 
you just want to keep reading all of these studies and you ask more questions like that uh, famous quote, I'm not going to get it specifically, but it's the more knowledge you have, then the more you realize how little you know. And that was something that held very true to me. And so science was just a way for me to keep investigating. That, uh, that quote or paraphrase that um, you just said, that's actually one of my favorite because, uh, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? It's a cognitive bias no. where, okay, so the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias where low information individuals think that they know everything. And that as you slowly begin to learn more, you realize that you don't know anything or that you feel as though that you don't know anything and that you may even experience what's known as imposter syndrome, which I'm sure that you're more than familiar with, <laughs> the yeah. imposter syndrome. And that particular quote always reminds me of that cognitive bias in my own particular journey because when I was younger, I would say going through, particularly going through my master's degree where it's like, I've gone through bachelor's and I now in graduate school and I feel like I know a lot, but I don't realize how much I don't know yet. So I'm like walking around with kind of this big head saying, oh my goodness, I, I know so much. But in reality, you keep studying and you're like, at some point you just kind of get sideswiped. You're like, I don't know anything. <laughs> yes, exactly. I 100% agree with that. And they often say that the most dangerous person is the person that has a little bit of information, right? It's at that stage where, like you said, they think they know everything, but they haven't learned quite enough yet to realize that they're, they really don't know anything. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Very, very dangerous. And I know this firsthand because I'm not, sh I'm not sure if you read into my background at all or went to the website, but I used to be involved with the alternative medicine community through a parent. And at one point I was challenging the uh, consensus on vaccine safety along with uh, genetically modified foods because I had convinced myself that there was something there that needed to be looked at more. Because I, like you, also like to ask questions, but I didn't have the training at the time to understand how I was wrong. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I was clearly suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect and subsequently have learned my lesson that if I ever feel smarter than the entire scientific community on something. I am probably most certainly incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good titration test right there yeah. to live by. Yeah, so. Uh, anyway, that's that's super interesting with your background. Okay, so nutrition, but then you also like you have a background in uh, in physi or you went on and got a PhD in physiology. So how did you make that transition? And now even in your postdoc, your postdoc is in uh, neuro behavioral neuroscience, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's so a great I'm just, question. I'm just curious how you made these transitions uh, mm -hmm. to kind of different areas of science from your under from your starting point of nutrition. Yeah, because you're right, it's not very common. Like a lot of my colleagues, uh, for example, in the Department of Neuroscience got their bachelor's in neuroscience, their PhD in neuroscience, and now they're doing their postdoc in neuroscience. And there, there really isn't too much of movement across disciplines for a lot of people. And, and mine are, are quite different, like going from nutrition to neuroscience. So I think the, the reasons I already covered why I got into nutrition and I'll touch a little bit upon the reason why I continue to do my master's in nutrition is because, and I still believe it, that nutrition is very powerful because it's something that you and I and all of us listening can control 
for the most part or have some control over what we eat every day, what we drink every day. And that has a profound impact on our health, our mental well-being, our physical health. And that to me is empowering and intriguing. And so that was, I think, part of the reason why I still have the love of nutrition. And it, it is also such a new science as well. Like it was only several decades ago that we discovered all the vitamins and how they're so important to our health. And to realize that, you know, in the 1930s, there was a plague that, you know, was wrecking the southeastern part of the United States. And they thought it was due to a bacteria. Meanwhile, it was just due to a vitamin B3 niacin deficiency. And it took them 31 years to realize that this plague was not due to a bacteria, but to a vitamin. So it wasn't that long ago that we were really discovering nutritional science. So it's a new science and it's very empowering. So that's why I went into nutrition. But I'd gotten two degrees in nutrition and I wanted to keep going further into being a scientist. I wanted to keep investigating. And in order to understand nutrition better, I felt like I needed a better foundation in physiology or just under understanding the human body. And I felt like I had kind of outgrown nutrition in a way because I had already studied, studied it for six years. So I kind of live by the ideology of I always want to put myself in a really big pond and be the little fish and be surrounded by bigger fish, people that are smarter than me, people that are more experienced than me, that are more skilled than me. But by the end of my time there, I want to be the big fish. And so by my end of six years of being in nutrition, I felt like I had been the big fish in the big pond. You know, I won a lot of awards. I had learned everything I wanted to. I had a lot of publications. So I said, okay, I need to go into another bigger pond. And so I went into physiology. And that made me much smarter because I could apply my nutrition knowledge to physiology and vice versa. And so my PhD thesis was still nutrition related though. So it wasn't completely irrelevant. I had ran clinical trials in which we did nutrition intervention for patients that had heart disease or patients that had high blood pressure or hypertension. And then using physiology, I also investigated certain early biomarkers for heart attack and stroke so that we might be able to determine who is more at risk for heart attack or stroke and intervene at that time point because cholesterol and blood pressure may not always be the best risk factors to determine who is at risk. And then um, the reason why I transitioned into behavioral neuroscience is because the biggest obstacles to my participant, my study participants' health was behavior modification. That is still the hardest thing that practitioners have to deal with on a daily basis is trying to get their patient to change their way of living, to change their diet, to be more motivated, to quit smoking, to quit drinking, to eat better, to exercise, whatever it may be. Those are the hardest things. And they were the biggest determinants. And, you know, I had a lot of patients that were addicted to smoking cigarettes, that were alcohol dependent, that had illicit drug use that had sugar addictions or salty food addictions. And it was really difficult to try and help them. We don't have the tools in the hospital to really be able to help them. And so that is what pushed me into doing a fellowship in behavioral neuroscience. So right now I get to study sugar addiction, nicotine addiction, alcohol addiction, how those things can impact our brain and then vice versa, how our brain impacts our control over those decisions and how we are addicted. So. I changed disciplines, but there was always a common thread as to it was building upon what I had learned and how I wanted to help people. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. And I, I'm guessing that with your most recent postdoc in the behavioral neuroscience, is there 
So as far as what what aspect of science you're using, is there is there like a large psychology component to what you're doing? Or is would, it, yeah, or is it, um, is it more, is it from the, like the biology, the neuroscience aspect of it? Or how exactly does that work? I would say a bit of both for certain. I don't think you can do one without the other, to be honest, in my opinion. But mm -hmm. um, the, I definitely focus more upon the molecular biology of the, of the neuroscience. So how particular neurons and particular brain regions talk to each other and how they might change how these particular neurons and the receptors that are on those neurons might change after a history of eating sugar over a period of time, or how they may change after smoking cigarettes for a period of time, and then how those same neurons may change our behavior in the long run. So a little bit more molecular biology focused. Okay, that's, that's very, very fascinating. I'm curious about, so you have a, a very strong nutritional background, and nutrition seems to be this area of constant contention like people just seem to not be able to decide what it is that like a a good diet is and there's so much disinformation misinformation out there i mean go through instagram you know you have all these uh, fitness influencers selling different supplements things of that nature recommending you know you have the you have a vegan diet, you have the keto diet, you have people promoting a carnivore diet these days. It just seems endlessly confusing. <laughs> so I'm curious as somebody who has spent a, a good amount of time working in nutrition, if, you know, as a scientist, what would you tell the average person who maybe is looking for a little nutritional advice in just this sea of information? And a lot of it is not good information like when you go like on the internet or turn on cable or browse through social media. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to be honest, that was one of the reasons why I decided to start the podcast. I was seeing all of these things, you know, and, and speaking to the fact that there are people that are very influential because they've gained a strong following and they want to share information on diet and nutrition with their followers. And I have to say that I, I honestly, I don't blame the influencers because I feel like everyone thinks that what they're doing is right. Mm -hmm. Everyone that's sharing information with people or their audience always thinks that they are trying to help whoever is going to listen. I don't think anyone is purposefully saying, I'm going to share this information because it's going to hurt people. You know, everyone thinks that they're, what they're doing is correct. What it comes down to is people that are educated in the area like me that have to step up to the plate. That responsibility is on people like me. And that, that is why I started the podcast because we know the difference between what is good science and what is bad science. It's sad to say, but not all published articles should be taken as gold. Not all studies are conducted with the proper methodology or the correct design. Sometimes studies are just published to entice thought or as a pilot study, as a foundation. And scientists understand that, but the general public may not understand that. And so it's the responsibility of people like me who may be an expert in certain areas that need to speak up, that need to share information. And so my advice to people that are looking at social media and want nutrition information is number one, one red flag is if the influencer or the person never shares side effects or negative effects or populations that it won't work for. 
I see a lot of even scientists, to be honest, that share a lot of nutrition information, but they always share the information through rosy colored glasses, only talking about the positives of something, only saying, you know, the great things and the benefits about it, but they never talk about the potential negative side effects, the individuals that may be at risk for that intervention, or even the studies that found no results or negative results. You need to find someone that's going to share everything because there is no perfect treatment. There is no perfect study or intervention. It's important to talk about the limitations. And so I think that's one big thing. You need to find someone who's willing to talk about it all. Uh, also looking for someone that does have the credentials, which I think has been spoken about a lot, but I hate to say it, I have seen people that do have the credentials and they still share misinformation. It's either because they're not an expert in the area and they're trying to share information that is out of their area of expertise. So unfortunately they've misinterpreted the information. So I do think trying to find someone that is an expert in that field is important. That's why on my podcast, I only speak about my three areas of expertise, nutrition, physiology, and behavioral neuroscience. If I want to talk about something outside of my area of expertise, I will go to an expert in that area and either talk to them ahead of time and get information from them, or I'll bring them on the podcast and interview them. So for the audience, try and find someone that is an expert in that area. The second, yeah, the second piece of advice was to look for someone that talks about the limitations and negatives, not only the science through rosy colored glasses. And I don't, you know, it's, it is difficult. There is so much information out there. And I think as scientists, in all honesty, it, it does come down onto us. One other piece of advice, if there are other scientific communicators by chance listening to this episode, one thing that bothers me is when people will cherry pick a paper or finding from a paper and tweet it or put it on social media without considering the larger context of all the other research that is out there. You know, I've seen physicians do this. I've seen mm -hmm. physicians, you know, do something about um, eating large amounts of meat and saturated fatty acids and saying, oh, it's protective for heart disease and it's protective for, uh, for mortality and everything like that. And they've cherry picked one statement out of one paper. And so all their followers, their hundreds of thousands of followers are like, oh, this is great. You know, I can eat all this meat. I can follow a carnivore diet. I can do whatever I want. And this is a medical physician. So their audience is going to trust them. But that physician did not talk about all the other research that has, that has existed the last several decades, they haven't talked about the limitations or the potential negative side effects or the things to look for. They're, they're doing their audience a disservice by just sharing one paper. And to be honest, that comes down to they're not that physician or that scientific communicator is not willing to put the time and effort into it. They're not willing to look at all the other evidence and share a complete story with their audience, which is really what is needed from scientific communicators. And that's what I've been trying to do. So every week, I research the whole topic, the whole area. And then if I share papers with my audience, I share, you know, four papers. And I know that those four papers are representative of all the studies that are out there. So my advice to the audience, it comes down to find someone that is willing to share the whole story on a topic, not just a cherry-picked paper, someone that's an expert in that area, and someone that will share the limitations and negative side effects too. Yeah, that's, that's all excellent advice. And the, the cherry picking seems to be a serious problem, even within the, from some people who have the credentials 
and they should know better, but then they're still cherry picking information. And I think it just, I mean, it, it speaks volumes to just how fallible even experts can be sometimes. I mean, it's, we're not, we're, not, we're certainly not perfect. Uh, nobody is. And it's important for, this is why having a community, a community is so important that you have all of these other people looking at the information and saying that, hey, you know, we're calling you out because you know, you're cherry picking or um, you, should, you should really, really evaluate what's going on here because you're not looking at the bigger picture. I think that that is a trap that all humans across all aspects of society fall to is failing to look at the bigger picture sometimes. This is why planning long-term can be so difficult, it seems like, and that your average person is a very, very poor long-term planner because we sometimes fail to grasp the bigger picture. But that's, uh, yeah, I, that, that's super important, the cherry-picking comment, because I do, I do see that happen a lot. And I know that in the past, I have definitely fallen victim to that, particularly with the, when I was challenging the scientific consensus on the uh, vaccine along with GMO safety, not only was I cherry picking data, but then I was looking at information because I didn't know at the time that the information that I was looking at, like the, the science publications, that it was like really poor quality and it should have been, that the conclusions that I think that they were telling me weren't actually telling me these things because I didn't have the level of understanding. So I was cherry picking information, looking at only the select studies that I wanted to confirm my prior beliefs of that there's something wrong with the consensus instead of looking at the entire body of evidence which overwhelmingly points to them being safe and effective at what they do. Um, and that goes for vaccines and as well as uh, genetically modified foods. But yeah, I just, I just didn't know. And I think that your average person, if they don't have the training, will definitely look at science. That's another thing too about making sure to go to experts in that particular field to get the information. So the average person, they look at science and they look at a singular study and they're saying like, oh, it's science. And this person isn't telling me that these are the conclusions, which you can read, you know, at the end of the abstract or whatever. So therefore it must be true. And then that's fine. And I don't have to worry about anything. I'm just going to do this. Right. It's, so much e it's so much easier to put very little thought into something versus to really, really dig into it because it's just easier. Humans are programmed to do the easier thing. And it's really important, particularly when it comes to making decisions, looking at science, et cetera, more important aspects of your life that you investigate as, as much as you possibly can. So yeah, but that yeah. was, that was all, it's all great advice. Yeah, all you're, you're advice. exactly right. It's because mm -hmm. it takes effort, you know, and even just not everyone has access to the full publications either, right? So they might just be reading the abstract on Google and looking at the author conclusions. But a lot of the times the author conclusions, like you said, don't necessarily reflect the true findings or you have to look at the methods. Like for example, there was one paper I remember that I, I called out in one of my episodes where they, they made a conclusion saying that something was very safe to consume because the, the lead content in it was below the, the US government requirement. But the, you, the lead requirement that they had cited was from 1993. And since then, the US government has changed it and allowed the minimum or the maximum allowable amount to be much, much lower. And I thought, why on earth did the scientists choose to cite the US level that was outdated 
back in 1993. Meanwhile, this paper was published like in 2017 and they chose to not cite the, the new requirement, which was the, the maximum level. Like you see what I mean? It's very complicated. And, and that's why we say it takes someone that's trained in that particular area to really be able to understand, is this article good science? And what can we take from it in, in the bigger picture? Yeah, precisely. Uh, and it's unfortunate that that has to be done and it's things like that that make people doubt science. And you see a lot of individuals these days not trusting science, but like they'll point to things of this nature and say, well, look what happened here. And then they'll extrapolate that to, well, we can't trust any science. And it's like, well, that's, right. kind, of, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's arguably, the scientific method is arguably the, the greatest tool that humans have ever invented because it's led to all of these wonderful things. Uh, and you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater type of thing. Science isn't perfect, but it's the best knowledge framework that we currently have for kind of figuring out how things work. So, yeah, so exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head where we have to find a happy medium. I think some people might take scientific publications as gold and some people might completely distrust them. But in reality, it lies somewhere in the middle. Yes. Yeah, precisely. And it is definitely unfortunate that we have people who are credentialed going out and misrepresenting results, making the community look bad. Uh, for example, I don't know if you saw that recent viral video by those two MDs from California that kind no. of, yeah, so they, they were arguing for reopening the economy and what they had done was they were looking at their own statistics from their clinics and then extrapolating that to the entire population of the US to make the argument that the COVID-19 pandemic is no worse than a bad flu season. And it was eaten up by uh, right-wing media because they are very pro, let's open the economy and it just went viral. And then you have all of the scientists stepping in condemning them, trying to go through and debunking and saying like, this is just really, really poor statistics. You would learn this in a stats 101 class that what they're doing is not prof proper methodology. And it was, it was just an absolute mess. But the, here you have, I mean, these are MDs and they're not experts in epidemiology, virology, et cetera. So they are really speaking outside of their area of expertise, but they have that MD label. So it's like, okay, the public looks at them, says these are people who should know what they're talking about because they have those letters after their names. They're telling me these things. It confirms my prior beliefs that I want the economy to open up and that this current pandemic is not nearly as bad as I want it, want it to be. So therefore, it just spread like wildfire. And it didn't help that it was picked up by news outlets well as well to give them a platform. And it was just... It's, been an absolute mess over the past week and then the entire scientific community is having to step in to debunk uh, to publicly condemn them and to reassure the public that the steps that we're currently taking uh, to mitigate the severity of the pandemic from a cases and deaths subsequently a death standpoint is absolutely justified but it's just it's so sad that something like that even had to be done in the first place and that you have these individuals who are willing, they're clearly, they were clearly financially motivated to do this. 
but they're willing to adulterate the oath they took in order to make money, essentially. <laughs> right. And, and like you said, yeah. they should be trusted. And so you raised an interesting thing that I've often thought about, too, is in this area or in this time of free information and the ability to share that information without really any hindrance on what we can post. And what can we do as a scientific community to, to, I don't know, regulate that or to like, I know we could say like training, you know, for the mm -hmm. students that are going through school now, perhaps there could be a scientific communication training course, but you know, like, do you think the government needs to step in? Like what on earth can we do to, to reduce the misinformation? Well, that's one of the reasons why I even created this platform to begin with is because ever since the 2016 elections, I, I was seeing this rise of, you know, this sort of like hatred towards experts, towards uh, the academic institutions like universities, uh, anti-science movements. I mean, arguably the current administration is, is like the, the the biggest anti-science administration I think we've seen in recent history, uh, just dismantling scientific advisory boards, boards all over the place. You know, at one point the president was calling global warming a Chinese hoax, but I started this to try to educate the public more on how to kind of dig through all of the misinformation or disinformation that's out there and to learn a little bit more how to think like a scientist would to approaching this problem. So it would be great to, that if the government actually stepped in to, to, to regulate it or to do something on a national level. But I actually don't see something like that happening with the current administration. Uh, I think it would have to take place under an administration that was far more welcoming to input from the scientific community, which currently is not the case. So therefore, if it's not gonna happen from government, it has to come from other sources. So I really think it's important that the scientific community steps in and says, okay, we've got this serious, serious problem where all of our, we have some of the brightest minds producing this great work and then the public doesn't trust us. You have sources picking, picking it up and manipulating it. So what, what can we do? And they're going to have to create, in my opinion, better science communication branches uh, to directly communicate to the public. And then at some point, we're going to have to figure out how to better educate the populace on how to dig through all of the information. As you stated, we have access to the wealth of human knowledge at our fingertips, right? I mean, we've never had access to so much information before. Everyone walks around with a smart device, your cell phone, that has more computing powder power than they used to send the astronauts to the moon in the 60s. It, it's just, it's just mind-boggling to me. But I mean, with, with access to all of this really good information, there's a bunch of bad too, right? And so that's why you see all of this craziness going on where people don't understand who to listen to when it comes to finding the truth. Who do we, who do we listen to? And then you, you know, you have the you have the current administration, particularly the president, saying things like fake news with anything that he doesn't agree with. So it makes me look bad. I don't agree with it. Therefore, it's fake news. And you have a, I mean, not a majority, but a decent population of the country who then listens to what he has to say and no longer trusts like anything. 
unless it comes from his mouth, which is, which is, uh, which is just terrifying, in my opinion. It's absolutely terrifying. And I'm not saying that there's not legitimate criticisms when it comes to the media, because they're competing with all of these different sources for your attention today. And we live in a bit of an outrage culture and sensationalism where things, again, because people are trying to get your attention and the more outlandish or crazy it sounds, the better chances that it does have of getting your attention, but facts should still matter. Mm-hmm. Facts should still matter. And how, how do you find them? I, people are more confused than ever, in my opinion. Yeah. And I don't I know, think but you I, also, what, what are your thoughts? I think you said something really important there, and that is the more outlandish something that is said, the, the more attention it gets. And I feel like even as scientific communicators like you and I, it's hard to get the same following or influence as people that are willing to tell not the whole truth or just the positive components to a truth or people that are telling lies that people want to hear because people are going to follow those of what they want to hear a lot of the time. Like, you know, the people that are influencers are influencers because they share things that people want to hear. If we're telling the whole truth, which is both the good and the bad, that doesn't always garner the same type of attention. And so I think it's also going to take scientific communicators like you and I to try and work really hard to figure out what is it going to take for our voice to be heard because we are competing against the people that aren't necessarily telling the whole truth. And I think that we are doing better. I see so many more scientific communication accounts on social media than I did just even three years ago. You know, tons of graduate students have social Uh, have scientific communication accounts on Instagram, Twitter, even on TikTok. I'm seeing on TikTok a lot of physicians and scientists that are on there that are sharing information, which is fantastic. So I'm optimistic about the scientific communication and and where it's going, but I do think that it's going to take a lot more effort from people like you and I because we have to try and compete with those that are telling people what they want to hear versus what we are telling them is what they need to hear. Yeah, one of the biggest hurdles, and I categorically agree, is that people want to hear what reinforces their belief systems. People yes. are not, we're not trained, we don't learn this, we, we don't learn this in K through 12 education, and I think it's a huge travesty, is we're not really taught logic or that it's okay to be wrong a lot of the training is teaching you what to think. Like there's a lot of fact memorization and you put it down on a piece of paper, but they're not really teaching you how to think. And uh, so that's one of the criticisms that I have of the public education system. Another being financial education, which I won't get into right now, but I don't think anyone learns enough financial education in K through 12. But with, uh, particularly with the philosophy component, I think that that would just be so tremendously valuable. Uh, We do learn a lot about science. There's quite a number of science courses that I can remember taking when I was younger. So physics, biology, chemistry, et cetera. But I would go into these classes and I would just kind of learn things. And I just remember this being my entire uh, education, K through 12, is just kind of fact presentation and then regurgitation. And I didn't really learn the process of thinking. I didn't learn that it's okay to be wrong type of deal. Uh, that nobody's going to be right 100% of the time, and it's a, which means that it's okay to be wrong, but when you are wrong, admit that you're wrong and learn the information and then kind of grow from there. Uh, 
that you should engage in self-reflection and say, why do I believe the things that I believe? I just, I, I mean, to me, one of the most valuable things I ever did was learn how to think, mm -hmm. how to think properly, how to, how, how to properly structure arguments from a foundation, foundational philosophical level. Uh, even, you know, with my scientific training, I never had, I never learned about philosophy of science. I don't know if that's something that you did, but I had to learn about philosophy of science on my own. And I thought that that was tremendously, tremendously beneficial because it gave me a window into how science actually works from a foundational level, that at its roots, it's nothing but a thought process, a rigorous thought process at the end of the day, but it's a thought process and then you apply it and then you kind of build all of these layers on top of it. And it has led to the discovery of fundamental truths about our reality. And then one, once we learn these things, then we can develop all these wonderful technologies from there. But I think that for me personally, the, uh, just the philosophical component has been very helpful. And I, I just don't see that enough, to be honest with you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it comes down to, are you familiar with Bloom's taxonomy? The pyramid or like the, the, at the base it's like the a pyramid of, of learning or under uh, or of information where the the base is just memorization and then the next level is understanding then the next level is applying then analyzing and there's another one in there and then the top is creation of information mm -hmm. and yeah essentially the the school systems are just doing the bottom two and probably because that is the easiest i have a lot of my best friends are teachers the elementary teachers and, and I've questioned them and challenged them on, on that fact that they're just doing the, the bottom two of the pyramid. They're just memorizing and understanding. They're not necessarily applying or analyzing it for, for the truth or to see if there could be something else beyond just what they're memorizing. And, and it comes down to time restraints, that there are test scores that they need to do well on and those test scores will determine if a student can go into college or those test scores determine if that school remains open. So there are so many administrative things that hold the teachers down from being able to to go higher up on that pyramid of education for their students. And I think it's going to come down to a government thing of just changing the curriculums and completely and allowing the teachers the time and perhaps not relying everything just on test scores and you know multiple choice test score that doesn't necessarily let you apply or question the information and like you said allowing them to actually think about what they're learning that definitely has to change yeah i don't i don't really see any way moving forward without it changing at this point because clearly what we've done hasn't prepared the population to have access to all of this information mm -hmm. and people are just lost today and they they don't know who they don't know who to listen to and they just kind of latch on to whoever makes them feel good and it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not that person that makes them feel good is telling them facts right i mean yeah. in my opinion facts still matter expert this is why experts matter and i what we've done in the past hasn't prepared us so therefore we cannot continue to keep doing what we're doing because it doesn't work. Yeah. And I definitely think that the current education system is a bit outdated and needs to be updated in order to kind of keep current with everything that is going on.
So I think that can, that can at least happen at the university level, I think. I mean, in the, at the university level, there definitely could be more emphasis on analyzing papers for proper methodology and were the conclusions accurate. And there was also a call out to the journals themselves pushing the authors of every paper to have a, a portion on the front to talk about their data in lay terms in regard to the greater impact that it can have on the world. So that when it's people that are outside the area or non-scientists are reading this, that there is an important conclusion that they can take from it. And that that conclusion also has to be peer reviewed because sometimes the little summary statement that they'll put on the title page is of mm -hmm. a paper is not actually peer reviewed. So I think that's an important thing that could come from scientists too. At the university level, start educating the students as well on how to properly evaluate science and to make them think, not just memorize. But then it also has to come from the scientists and the publishers as well. That's, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, with the publications and if they could actually make something that is not as technical. I mean, that's certainly more work, right? <laughs> and it's hard yeah. enough to produce a paper, uh, but if there could be a peer reviewed, uh, almost maybe a cliff notes, you could call it, of the actual publication itself so that anyone could pick it up with a K through 12 education and mm -hmm. understand the purpose of the paper and then the conclusions uh, that were reached from it. And you know, even if those conclusions means more studies need to be conducted. You know, they should be, be put in big red letters that the conclusion of this paper, more studies need to be conducted. We can't actually say anything definitive as of right now. I mean, that, exactly. would, be that would be perfectly fine too. Yes. Uh, and I think that that would be very valuable to the public. So yeah, I absolutely, I think it's a fantastic idea. That'd be great if they would actually do that. Mm -hmm. I hope so. I think they're pushing for that, especially coming from the bigger journals. And then on a university level, do you think that, I mean, do you think like changing the, perhaps the, the core curriculum of what students who get a bachelor's degree go through, that, you know, that something would have to change, like maybe they would have to take, implement new course structures? You know how there's, uh, they call them the gen eds, the general requirements, that perhaps there's something within the general requirements that could be added that could better prepare students for you know, identifying disinformation, misinformation, how to better understand science uh, from a, you know, reading results, who to listen to, et cetera. I could yeah. see something like that. Absolutely. I think that there's more flexibility to change the curriculum at the university level than there is at the high school or elementary level. And so having a course or even a mini course on how to think, how to question scientific papers, how to analyze the information for methodology, proper statistics, et cetera, would be extremely useful, or to even add that on to an existing course. I think they have something like that in some medical schools for the physicians, but I think there needs to be even more of an emphasis on this because it is extremely important. I'm actually glad that you brought it up. Uh, statistics. It seems as though statistics can be so easily manipulated and misrepresented today, and that it's a common form of disinformation is to manipulate statistics and, or even take good statistics and present them in a way that makes them uh, present them like through a lens to promulgate an agenda. Do you, do you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? 
I do. Yeah. I've yeah. seen a, a, a joke that is it statistics or is it magic? And I, I don't, I don't believe that, but it is, it is true. I mean, the, the more you learn about statistics, I think the more obvious it appears that you can analyze the same data set a hundred different ways. And in scientific studies, you do always have to report the way that you've analyzed the data, but you can analyze it a hundred different ways until mm -hmm. you find the results that you're looking for. So I know in clinical trials, for example, when I ran or when I wrote all the ethics protocols for my clinical trials, you have to define how you're going to analyze your clinical data. And in clinical trials, it's, it's far more rigorous. Like you have an intention to treat analysis a lot of the time, meaning that if you have patients that drop out because of attrition, because they didn't want to take the intervention anymore because they became ill, you still have to include them in the analysis. And that is very important. And a lot of journals will hold the scientists to that scientific or statistical rigor. When it comes to non-clinical information, then that is when there is a lot of flexibility. And unfortunately, people have to have the statistical background to be able to understand, is that an appropriate analysis or is that not? Especially because we're now in the area of big data. You know, we have RNA-seq, we have single-seq, we have omics analyses, where you literally have thousands of molecules that are being analyzed to see, is this group different versus this group different? Like, in individuals that smoke cigarettes versus those that never smoked cigarette, let's look at their omics profile. And you'll have like 100,000 molecules come up and say, oh, these 500 molecules were different. But there's so many statistics that go into that where you need to control for the fact that there are going to be false positives when you're looking at hundreds of thousands of things. And statistics is even more important now in our world of big science. And statistics are evolving. So it's like if you've had a, a stats background before, you actually have to keep learning and teaching yourself the new techniques now just in order to keep up with it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, for me, I don't have a strong stats background. And sometimes I even get lost in the statistics when I'm reading things and questioning whether or not the methods are, you know, as rigorous as they need to be. And I'm hoping that, and perhaps you could shed some light on this, uh, that the scientific community is working on making sure that the way the statistics are done and perhaps it's really dependent upon the case cases i don't know like each individual study how you set it up the statistics will look you know this way versus this study over here the statistical analyses are going to be done this way or if there's some sort of standard across uh, across all of science of like hey with these with, with this this is how you do this is how statistics are supposed to be but i know for even me it can be confusing and you know i'm a scientist and i don't even it's probably because I don't have a strong stats background and I don't work in uh, the, the medical sciences or something like that. But uh, I mean, what would you, what, what are your thoughts on, I, I'm, I'm just curious as to what is the current state of affairs in the scientific community? If you, if you currently work, if you're, if you're familiar with that or if you, uh, you know, work with stats regularly, I don't know. Yeah. So I know some journals have done a really great thing where when you submit your paper, you can check a box that says, yes, I want my submission to be reviewed for statistical analysis. And they will actually have on the journal board a statistician that will review the paper to see, are the statistics appropriate? But you have to check that box. Mm -hmm. And that's only, that's not all journals. I think what it comes down to is every single journal should have a statistician that has to review the paper. I think that that would be a brilliant thing to do. 
because not all the peer reviewers are going to have a strong stats background. And I know that from experience. So if they don't have a strong stats background, they aren't really going to speak to the statistics that you've chosen because they don't know how to. And that is a difficulty. You're, you're hoping that all your peer reviewers will represent the different facets of your work. So for example, if I, let's just say, for example, I submitted a paper about obesity and cigarette smoking and heart disease then I would need an expert in obesity as my peer reviewer. I need an expert on nicotine or cigarette smoking, and I need an expert on cardiovascular or heart disease. But out of those three peer reviewers who can properly assess my paper, they may not know anything about statistics. And I think every single journal needs to have a, a fourth or another reviewer that is a statistician always, because especially with the big science or the big data right now, I think people have a good or a foundation knowledge to be able to assess the, the statistics of basic experiments, but with like fiber photometry, where you have massive readouts of information across time, all these sequencing or omics, people don't really know how to assess that. It's more liberal. It's more flexible. It's like, okay, you did some statistics. It looks good. It's probably appropriate. That's kind of how it is right now, unfortunately, unless you have a reviewer on there that knows mm -hmm. proper statistics. Yeah, from what you described, it sounds like it could be more rigorous, and it and it absolutely mm -hmm. should be more rigorous. It should so, be. Yeah. yeah, the hopefully the elective checking the box it becomes compulsory, and it mm -hmm. it's automatically reviewed by hopefully a statistician because yeah, it just seems like big data is not going away anytime soon, and that it's going to be incorporated more and more into science. And if you don't have scientists with strong statics, uh, statistics background, which is fine. I mean, they don't need to be experts in statistics, too, and an expert in their field. But therefore, you should have an expert in statistics analyze the stats that are done in the paper just to make sure that it, it is as rigorous as possible. Because, of course, you, that's the whole point of even peer review in the first place is to make sure to ensure the quality of the results to say that, hey, we put our stamp of approval on it. To the best of human knowledge, it looks as though you followed all of the proper protocols, therefore the conclusions can be trusted. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And to go even one step further, one thing when I was in my master's and I was submitting some papers that I was surprised about is I had thought that we would have to give all the raw data to the publisher or the peer reviewer. So if they wanted to, they could reanalyze the data. They could literally see what it was. But that isn't a requirement, probably because I don't know, people aren't comfortable sharing their raw data or it just takes a lot more work. But I think it could even be taken one step further. And whenever you go to submit work to a journal that you also have to submit your raw data so that if the statistician wants to completely reanalyze the data to see if your conclusions are correct, then they have that capability to do that. I mean, sometimes universities will get audited because there was concern that maybe some of the data was um, fabricated or perhaps the data was changed a little bit and only then are they requested to show all of their raw data. Why not just ask everyone to always submit all of their raw data? I mean that is a lot of data unfortunately like some of my data sets are like you know two terabytes of information so it, it is a lot but I think that that could be another step beyond the next step after just having a statistician on board. Next ask everyone for their raw data with every submission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess at some point, too, it comes down to how long is it actually going to take to, it already takes a very long time to publish an article. Yes. Which, you know, it's good and bad, right? It, it takes a long time because you want to make sure that the results can be trusted. At the same point, too, 
we don't want it to take, I guess, forever uh, because you need new information to come out. So there's this, there's going to be a fine balance, right? We're going to have That's to, true. It, it need, we know it needs to be better, uh, but exactly how you go and implement or augment the current system to be better is certainly open to debate and time constraints should definitely uh, be, should be factored into the equation. Mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. Very interesting. So regarding your, okay, so your current research. So you said you deal with, uh, you deal with neurons in more of a biological level. I was just curious as to, I mean, could you go a little bit into, I guess, the, the methodologies or maybe just kind of walk us through what your average day looks like? I'm just curious. Sure. So I have multiple projects. I can speak to one, I can speak to them somewhat uh, vaguely or generally. I, for example, in one project, investigate the sex differences of the brain. So how a female brain might be very different from the male brain. And for decades, a lot of the time, we looked at men or male species as the model to understand neuroscience or science in general. You know, like when I did kidney disease research, it was all in men or male animals. And in the last several years, there has been a push to say, well, men and women are not the same. There are stark differences in pathology and how the disease progresses, their risk for disease, et cetera. And the brain to all of us is still very much a black box. We still have so yeah. much to investigate and discover. And just identifying that there are differences between the female and male brain is a huge area. So that's one of my projects. And specifically, I focus on how alcohol can or alcohol dependence is also very different in women versus men. And the reasons could be because of how particular brain regions act. So for example, there's one brain region in females that seems to be far more active than it is in males. And that particular brain region regulates levels of anxiety. And clinically, we see that in women that are alcohol dependent, it is more often that they are alcohol dependent because they're trying to self-medicate their own stress or anxiety in their life. Uh, and that's more common, that relationship between stress, anxiety, and alcohol than it is in men. And so we're trying to understand the neurobiology behind that in order to basically find a better treatment for, for women. And I show that there is a relationship there between with the sex hormones on that particular brain region. So the effect of progesterone, it can activate that brain region to induce anxiety, and that increases the propensity for alcohol consumption. And so what that means is then in a clinical population, maybe we can look at progesterone levels and just consider that in the, in the bigger picture of the woman's health. Are their progesterone levels normal? Are they on a, an oral contraceptive? Is that impacting their mood or their behavior? Etc. So that's one thing that I've been investigating. I also investigate different genes in regard to nicotine addiction, where I use CRISPR gene editing. So CRISPR gene editing is a great tool, which is a whole huge topic unto itself in regard to the potential it has and the ethics of it and the, and the future of using CRISPR gene editing. But I think the, the best use of CRISPR right now is to create new experimental models. So for example, we don't know all the genes that induce schizophrenia. We, don't, we do know that it's polygenetic, 
I published a paper on this that multiple genes are involved in the development of schizophrenia. And we've never really been able to model schizophrenia very well. But now with the use of, of CRISPR gene editing, we can model that, for example, in cells to understand how, okay, if this gene is, is not working properly and this gene is not working properly, and what does it mean for the rest of the, the health of the cells? What happens to the other messengers or molecules? How do they talk to each other now? And that gives us a better understanding of what could potentially be going on in the brain of individuals that are living with schizophrenia. So CRISPR is a great tool to essentially model other pathologies or, or other conditions. And so I use that a lot in cell culture work. And I do a lot of behavioral neuroscience work to understand addiction as well, like alcohol addiction, nicotine addiction. We use things like fiber photometry, which can measure calcium signal from the brain, which is a very cool technique in real time. And that gives us an indication of how the neurons are being activated and under what conditions, under what behaviors. And that essentially gives us a target now for therapeutic development. So with all these projects, I do hope in the end and one thing I find interesting with my background is that I'm, I'm always very patient focused, which from other people that came from neuroscience or other scientific disciplines, their focus is not on the patient, which has shocked me in the beginning and, and still kind of continues to shock me that their motivation for what they do is, I think, just from scientific discovery or perhaps even sad to say it's not an altruistic um, reason why they're doing science, but it could be just to have a career or to get a grant or whatever it may be. But I feel like sometimes the altruism of science has been lost. And by me focusing on the patient and how my work can eventually lead to better treatments for patients has helped me maintain or retain my altruism for science. It's fascinating. So do you work with uh, animal models or is it mostly cell culture? I've worked with all of them. So cell culture, animal models, and clinical populations. I've been lucky enough to be able to go across all of them. Is the primary animal use still mice, mice models? models? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. Um, all of the science that you're doing, really, really interesting and very, very diverse and certainly important, right? Certainly, certainly important. Now, so what, what, have you, what have you found with the differences? Can you talk about the differences that you found between the male and the female brains a little bit, a little bit more? Or, I mean, I know you, you touched on it briefly that there are, there are differences. And you said when it, comes, it, when it comes to addiction, right? So when it comes to addiction, you're seeing actual like structural differences or like how the neurons behave with one another exactly I guess I was wondering if you just go into a little bit more detail because I'm just, you've piqued my curiosity. <laughs> sure, yeah. And I can speak just like generally to the, to what we already know in the existing literature as well. And, and to say that this is coming from mostly preclinical models as well. So not all of it has been confirmed in with fMRI or, or CT scans or anything like that. But what we do know is that there is a particular brain region as well called the amygdala. The amygdala is thought to regulate motivation, emotion, fear, and memory. For example, this brain region has been implicated in individuals that live with post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know that the amygdala is what we call sexually dimorphic, meaning that its characteristics are quite different across the female and male species. So by different, we can mean simply the morphology. So 
the size of the brain region. It could mean the distribution of the type of neurons. So we have different types of neurons. Like we have glutamatergic neurons, which are considered the activity, the high activation excitability neurons. Then we also have GABAergic neurons, which are like the inhibiting, the quieting down neurons. We have lots of types of neurons. So there could be a different combination of those types of neurons in the amygdala between male and females, which will change the activity of that brain region. So that brain region, we know clinically through fMRI scans, that brain region is activated when someone is scared, when someone is sad, when someone is happy. So that brain region is thought to regulate those emotions. And guess which emotion activates the amygdala the most out of those ones? Fear. Yeah, fear. So interestingly, because the amygdala also regulates motivation, that is how we think fear and motivation are linked. Oh, that's fascinating. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so it's, it's intriguing to realize that that brain region is different between men and women. And then what does that mean for fear and motivation? And for example, for risk of PTSD, if someone has gone through a very traumatic event, and we know that estrogen actually could potentially have an effective, sorry, a, a protective effect against PTSD. And it is thought because it might impact the functioning of the amygdala. And so women, therefore, depending on where they are in their cycle or if they're taking an oral contraceptive, but if their estrogen levels are high during a traumatic event, they may be less likely to develop PTSD. And they thought, well, maybe we can give estrogen treatment to males that has yet to really be flushed out yet to see if that is effective for someone. Like, let's say, for example, someone goes through a very traumatic event, they go to the hospital, can they receive a small amount of estrogen? to impact the amygdala, to almost make that amygdala part of the brain region more like a female brain uh, amygdala. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so um, in regard to my research, so there's a brain region called the interpeduncular nucleus, and that brain region has been implicated also in anxiety, but nicotine addiction as well, and nicotine aversion. So if someone, like if you've ever smoked a cigarette or a cigar, and you felt really sick, maybe nauseous, uh, not well after smoking it. The interpeduncular nucleus is what gets activated in, and in part is responsible for some of that aversive or negative side effects. And I'm starting to show that that brain region is also very different in preclinical models anyway, very different between the male and female species. That that brain region is very progesterone responsive. So when a woman is in the premenstrual phase or experiencing premenstrual syndrome or PMDD, which is the even more severe form of PMS, that perhaps part of the reason why they feel more anxious or less uh, socially uh, willing to socially interact with other people is because progesterone is acting on the interpeduncular nucleus to induce anxiety. And interestingly, alcohol can inhibit that. So it's part of the reason or the mechanism or relationship of anxiety and progesterone and specific to women because women have far higher levels of progesterone than men do. So men just don't have the same level of estrogen and progesterone and therefore that potentially impacts the type of receptors that are in particular brain regions and just the distribution of different neurons. So it's really coming to light that the brain regions are very different between men and women, but it also begs the question, well, what about women in menopause or women that are on oral contraceptives or whatever it may be? or people that are going through transgender change, how are their brains changing along with this process? And it's a whole new area of research that I, I find absolutely fascinating that we really are just starting to uncover. Yeah, that, I mean, that all sounds super fascinating to me. 
particularly uh, with the what you were describing as PTSD and the differences between men and women when it comes to the uh, amygdala. But I was also curious as to, so you mentioned primarily you have been talking about neurons. Has anyone that you know of or perhaps something that you have done, I, I know that the brain isn't just neurons. There's other cells within the brain, glial cells, for example. So I was just, I was just curious maybe if that was something that you looked at or if you know that if there's anybody that has looked at it. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Glial cells, astroglial cells or astrocytes are, are definitely a growing area of neuroscience right now. You're right. Like for the last several decades, the neuron was the cell type of the brain. And in the last five years or so, we're realizing that there's a lot of other cell types in the brain that are very important. You know, glial cells are, it's thought to regulate the inflammatory response. They are the support system for the neurons. And it was just a few years ago, Nettergaard's group, she's a great scientist, had identified her characteristic uh, or identified and characterized a system in the brain called the glymphatic system. So we don't, we haven't had a, a lymphatic system, like the drainage system that we have throughout the rest of our body that gets rid of waste and extra solutes and, and fluids and whatnot. And so she coined the combination of the glial cells and a potential lymphatic system. She called it the glymphatic system, which essentially is the metabolic waste disposal system of the brain, the garbage disposal system. And it's only activated, really activated during deep REM sleep, which is fascinating because we never really understood what the, the really big purpose of sleep was other than just to regain our energy back. And it's because we have a buildup of adenosine and other things that cause sleep pressure, but what is really the function of sleep? And sleep is actually a very active process where that lymphatic system gets turned on it clears all the metabolic waste from the brain. Essentially, our brain gets washed over with cerebral spinal fluid, and the metabolic waste is eliminated. And unfortunately, that lymphatic system is impaired in, again, just in preclinical models. We know that it's impaired with medium to high alcohol intake. We know that it is impaired in very stressful or anxiety situations. And it's obviously impaired in lack of sleep. So if someone's not sleeping very well or they're, if they're not getting into a deep REM sleep, and in particular in individuals with dementia, they also don't have proper sleep. It tends to impact the MPFC, which regulates sleep as well. And so that's kind of a vicious cycle because without the proper glymphatic system, it could increase the risk of dementia because you could have a buildup of metabolic waste and a buildup of beta amyloid. And so you want to make sure your glymphatic system is cleaning your brain basically every night and getting a good night's sleep. And that is just, that is a completely new area. And that was only discovered just maybe five years ago. I think she published on it in science. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely there's, and there's epithelial cells, there's ependymal cells that line the blood brain barrier or the cerebral spinal fluid brain barrier, which are absolutely fascinating as well, because there's a concept of a leaky blood brain barrier where the, the cells that come together, the, the gaps, they start to form gaps. And as a result, things that shouldn't be entering the brain are now entering the brain and that could have big implications for mental health and mental well-being. And that's one hypothesis as to how dementia may progress is because of a, a leaky blood-brain barrier. And that is not neurons, that's you know, ependymal cells or epithelial cells. So absolutely other cell types in the brain are very important, but they only really came to light or started to be investigated in the last handful of years. Yeah, this, I'm super excited. Well, I, I find neuroscience very fascinating. And uh, I'm really excited to see all of the research that's being done into all these different other types of cells because obviously there's more stuff there than just neurons, but we've solely focused, as you said, on neurons over 
in the past, you know, for, for a very long time. I don't know how many years, but uh, for a very long time. But then there's all this interesting research and work being done with uh, these different types of cells. And I'm excited to see the advances in science as more and more uh, researchers, such, such as yourself, focus on, uh, focus on these areas of the brain to see how this impacts overall health. Uh, and in particular, you mentioned the lymphatic system, so the lymphatics uh, of the brain, and that that was just discovered, you said, about like three years ago, roughly? Three, four years ago? Yeah, Maybe exactly. Five? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. so that, yeah, that's so interesting because for a long time, I know for me, it never really made sense that there wasn't some sort of system that cleansed the brain mm -hmm. every night. It just wouldn't, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Because of course you're, the cells in your, in your brain uh, produce waste like all the other cells in your body. So they have to, right. there has to be some way of getting rid of it. And you mentioned the importance of sleep and all of the research that's been done on sleep from what I've read, and perhaps you'd care to comment on it, is how incredibly important good sleep is from not only like your, your brain health and perhaps its implications when it comes to dementia, but also its implications when it comes to like overall health. Like there's so many different aspects that poor sleep can have a negative impact on the overall quality of your life. And yes, it's, probably, it's probably just not dementia. I mean, I don't wanna comment on it. I don't, I don't wanna speculate either because that's it's not my area of expertise, but I just find it super fascinating. Uh, particularly when it comes to sleep, because I know in particular, sometimes I have a hard time sleeping and I, I just know my entire day is thrown off. And as I'm sure it is for a lot of people, although I think people, you know, obviously we're unique and wired differently. Some people respond better, or I should say better, but at least better than me when they don't have sleep and can operate on less sleep. But I know for me, I need like a good eight hours. Other people can sleep five or six and feel fine and operate just fine. But, uh, when I don't get enough sleep, like my entire day is kind of thrown off, and then I have to try to compensate with caffeine or something else, which I really don't like to do, but I definitely cannot operate and be my best self without having a good amount of sleep. And I know for me, that number is eight hours. And I think that's probably the average for most people, but that's yeah. super fascinating. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, what, uh, you know, you have your fellowship right now. What are you, what are you gonna do next? I mean, I'm assuming fellowships are usually what, like two to three years, maybe only a year. I wish, I wish it was that short. Um, I've been in this lab now for about three and a half years. Okay, so you've been a while. And yeah, it's been a while. And I think it it depends what lab you go into for how long your fellowship will be. In my particular lab, my PI Paul Kenny likes to publish big papers, like only nature, cell, or science papers, and those types of papers take a lot of years. And I knew that when I joined his lab that I would probably be in his lab for a good four to five years, which in neuroscience, I feel like is, is fair because neuroscience does take quite a while to generate, particularly behavioral neuroscience. The experiments take a long, long time. Some of them even take like one of the hardest skills I had to learn was microsurgery, which took me months and months to learn. And it was, it can be a, a very big learning curve in neuroscience because there's always brand new technologies that come up. So, but my next steps would be, I definitely want to stay in academia. I love research. I love being a scientist. I am a curious cat. I always want to know how to improve the status quo. And I think I have a lot of good ideas to offer the community, the, the world in general. And so I feel like I can do that by being a scientist. So when my fellowship is done, I will be applying for professor positions 
or lead scientist positions. I don't think I have any particular university in mind. I'm pretty much just going to see what's available. I also will keep up with this scientific communication that I do because I think it's so important. And I think it's a call to all scientists that scientific communication is a component of our responsibility, I think, to the greater community. We don't just conduct science, but it's also our job to translate the knowledge that we generate. And so even if that just means just translating the knowledge that you've or that we as scientists have found and, and sharing that with the community, I think that's important. So that's something I'll definitely focus on in the present and in the future too. That sounds, yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing. And, uh, you know, big thumbs up to continuing the science communication component. And I couldn't agree more that you know, scientists should, as a part of their job responsibilities, consider, seriously consider science communication uh, as one of those components. And I think that unless something changes and, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully it does get better in the immediate future, but unless, you know, until, until that comes, I think that more and more scientists definitely need to, uh, need to kind of embrace that philosophy as one component of who they are as a scientist is that they communicate, learn how to communicate it and do communicate it uh, to the population at large. It's definitely, as we've discussed at length already, it's so important these, and particularly these days, particularly these days. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I think that's about it, unless there's anything else that you wanted to add. Otherwise, I just wanted, you know, we can just go ahead and you know, you can tell the uh, audience where they can, you know, find the People Scientists podcast to learn more about nutrition, physiology, et cetera, what it is that you do. Yeah. So I do a, a podcast episode every Sunday. I have about 58 episodes out. I think I just launched my 58th episode this past Sunday. It's something that I love to do. I love talking about nutrition, our body and our brain. And so I often will take requests from my followers or listeners as to what they want to hear, or I'll just cover topics that I'm an expert in. Usually each episode is about 25 to 35 minutes. I try to keep it manageable to some degree, uh, but also on all of my social media platforms, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. So I always share tidbits of information throughout the week as well. So if podcasts are not something for you, then people can also follow me on social media and perhaps you can list my handles your description box if people want to check me out but you can no, also just, yeah. you can also just google stephanie caligari and and be able to to find all my social media platforms and yeah so hopefully the the people scientist podcast will be something that will be useful for a lot of people in your audience it's 100 percent evidence-based and i tell the whole story i don't just take you know five papers and say oh this is interesting i literally spend probably about 25 hours a week investigating the area and making sure that I'm giving people the whole story. That is something that I think is incredibly important. I want to tell you the, the studies where it wasn't effective or the conditions that it may not be effective for or where the data is conflicting and maybe not as clear in the area where it is more clear because I want people to have the whole truth of, of what's available. And that's something that I think I'll continue to do for a long time. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I'm looking forward to the episodes that you release in the future. And of course, uh, for those who are tuning in, all of the uh, links to the social media, her website uh, will be posted in the show notes. Anyway, Dr. Caligiuri, thank you so much for joining and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. 
Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.